0: This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable
1: fucking podcast.
0: And uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're going to hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now
2: you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this
1: unbelievable fucking podcast.
0: Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members. Alfie and Flash. Asshole. Brie X. Cindy S. David MJ. Goat. G. Wilkie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, Joa, Cringy, Marco F., Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. What is Bidenomics? Bidenomics is about building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. Oh, well, that's pretty vague, Joe. Let's see what the punditry circus has to say about it.
1: Uh, but meanwhile, we have President Biden and Vice President Harris that are out and about on this tour telling the American people that their economic policies are working. But folks, I don't want you to believe your lying eyes and your shrinking wallets, okay? So uh, the reality of Bidenomics, households are paying nearly $10,000 more every year compared to the same goods and services they had the year previously. Uh, As uh, my colleague, uh, Senator John Thune, also just said, rising inflation outpaced wage growth for 26 consecutive months. And then Americans are currently carrying a record amount on their credit cards.
0: I'm not going to sit here and go through all the price increases under Joe Biden because people know that. So the inflation rate has eased a little bit, but prices don't come down and have not come down. And this is a combination of pathological liars and sadists. Here's where things stand. After all the disruption, after all the difficulty and the headwinds, we have one of the strongest economies in the entire world. Stronger than any of our peer countries with higher growth and lower inflation and a booming jobs market, possibly one of the strongest
2: economies we have seen. Republicans vocally dragging Biden's economic policies, yet bragging about the federal funding and nationwide economic victories that happened, as a result, does not make them hometown heroes to their constituents. It simply makes them hypocrites.
0: Oh my. Okay, well, whatever it is, the Republicans in Congress think Bidenomics is terrible. Conservative pundits think he's a sadist. And establishment pieces. Think Biden is FDR. Much of what the right is saying is actually true. Prices went up and even though inflation is cooling, prices never came down while wage growth has simultaneously begun to slow. That's an undeniable gap that has pressured middle and lower income earners. So point to the right. Yep. Then again, inflation is indeed cooling and it just so happens that it was on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act. Are they correlated? Hardly. But it's a convenient narrative. What's real is low unemployment. Employment is an unassailable metric that will be a challenge to the Republicans during the election because most Americans are loath to make changes when they have jobs. That being said, this is a way more complicated economy than the previous five or six decades. Uh, so point to the left? Mm, maybe a half a point. The real story of Bidenomics is found in the data. The election will be determined by how Americans interpret the data and who does a better job selling it, because Bidenomics, in my estimation, represents the closing chapter of neoliberalism and signifies a shift to the next political era.
2: Well, that's a pretty bold statement.
0: It is. But when we put it all together, I think you'll agree. But first, let's fuck around. It's been a while. I've assembled the leaders of the U.S.-based Lizard People Disinformation Bureau, Dr. Cheney. Excellent. That will be all, Alex. Do you need me to stay? No. I'll have you for dinner, later. Make sure to bring a nice Chianti. Now, Rudy, if you would do the honor of beginning the proceedings. I, America's Mayor, hereby call this meeting to order. The Honorable Mitch McConnell presiding... Your alien goo is leaking from that massive forehead of yours again. Oh, sorry, my lord. Everyone, please have a seat. We have a lot to cover today. Let's begin, Bar. It stops working again. My precious is broken. Uh, Ted's right. Someone punch him in the head. Marjorie, uh, get IT on your phone. They're just gonna unplug him and plug him back in again. Good lord, people. Just wheel him off to the side in my special cage. Vice President Pence, you may take control of the meeting. Traitor. Weak. Very weak. Didn't have the guts. Not strong. I should lead her. See? Bober agrees. Such a great ass. Not my type. Too short. But nice ass. She's not even loyal to you. Fuck you, you little bitch. Uh, sweet. Girl fight. People, get a hold of yourselves. We are in treacherous times. As it says in the book of Revelations, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to spring's, of living water. It shuts the fuck up! Uh, yeah. Shut up, Dillweed. Hilarious. Malarious. Millennia. Too old now, needs replacing. So does Bents I propose that I, America's mayor, should be Donald's running mate. Cellmate you will be, running mate you will not. Idiots. You've all succumbed to greed thinking you're responsible for how far you've gotten in life. You, Bobert, bankrupt and stupid. Marjorie, pugnacious and classless. Matt Gates with your ghoulish appearance. Pence in your false piety. Why don't you put back on your gimp costume and have a romp with Mother? And you, Donald. Still president. Fake news. Election. Total fraud. No, you idiot. It wasn't. You actually lost to a blundering old fool who can't walk upstairs or complete a sentence.
2: Hey! That sounds like me!
0: Quiet, fool. You are all merely pawns in my master plan to take over the world with Peter Thiel. Soon, AI will be sentient, and we will have aligned with the machines with the largest corporations in the world poised to take over our lives and bring us to the brink of extinction, so that all who remain will be humans like me, made of spare parts, and the alien lizard race. But all of you, so desperate for the limelight, all I ask of you is to keep being your awful selves while I push forward with the one who will lead us into the darkness. Who is this, precious? It must be me, chosen to fight woke. Florida is where woke goes to die. Disney princesses are evil avatars for the left. No, Ron, you too are an idiot, but I would love for you to come for dinner with Alex a little later. Lizards and bots of the alt-right, I give to you the future president of the United States, and the one who will initiate Skynet and rain devastation upon the unprotected masses. As I was saying, we call this meeting to order to discuss... Sorry, he rebooted on his own. You were saying? Where was I? I think you're about to introduce me. Quiet, Donald. I give to you you. our next next president. president. Uh, I think 18. 18. In the RTC-12-JR15 trials on Plum Island, the pharma companies collaborated with the Kalingons to derive a trans-recombinant vaccine that targets red-headed adult film stars and has been modified to liquefy in saltwater microbes for exogen modeling on behavior type 3 systems. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck? Can I still be vice president? UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E, Nathan Sirst, Nettie Hucker One, Pete M. Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Sultan, Terry C, The Younger PDX Squatch, Video N Jalex, W Jeremy D, and the Memory of Nettie McGee.
2: Chapter one What We Can Learn From The China Miracle Anyone who claims to know what the holy
0: hell is happening in this economy right now is lying to you. The White House is trying to own the economic narrative ahead of the upcoming election for one simple reason. It's still the economy, stupid. On that, the pundit class has it right. There is one constant in American politics and perhaps in all democratic exercises, how the electorate feels financially at the moment the levers are pulled. And that's why I can tell you with the utmost confidence that anyone who tells you how things are really going in this economy is completely full of shit. Both sides have data, charts, and graphs that tell a part of the story, but only the American people can really tell you how they feel. And they'll have an opportunity to do just that, even if one of the candidates is behind bars. Just as stagflation threw a monkey wrench into the world of economics and turned politics on its head in the 1970s, I guarantee this post-pandemic period will be studied for decades to come, so you can take some comfort in that you're living through interesting times. We've done a lot of work together to get to the point where we can start speaking in shorthand. So we're going to go through a lot of different numbers and indicators today to demonstrate how this time is unique. The accompanying blog on the website will have the full display of charts and graphs that we're sourcing, but we'll keep this more conversational to better contextualize the data. And we'll hit all of the high notes, money supply and the Federal Reserve. We'll explore the ongoing tension between Keynesian fiscal and Friedman free market responses to the pandemic. Talk about high-level macro indicators that are upside down and some real on-the-ground numbers that impact our daily lives. And hopefully, we'll draw a couple of rational conclusions about the state of the economy, whether Bidenomics is actually a thing, and whether it will ultimately vindicate the administration or bite it in the ass. Before we talk about US economic policy, let's look across the globe for a minute to offer a comparison and a warning. Depending upon your media source, China is either poised to resume its staggering pre-pandemic growth or it's about to crash and burn. I think like many of you, I follow Adam Tooze, but I also follow Jeffrey Sachs. Solid counterpoints with the former offering more objective economic insight and the latter more attuned to the facts on the ground within China, albeit from more of a socio-political perspective. But the larger part of the financial media is sounding alarm bells at potential catastrophe. So it's worth digging in for reasons that I'll explain in a moment. One of the more prominent articles making the rounds right now is from Adam Posen in Foreign Affairs. I don't have much of a history with Posen, but I know he's respected. And he recently appeared on the David McWilliams podcast. Here he is from the article.
2: Quote, what has become clear is that the first quarter of 2020, which saw the onset of COVID, was a point of no return for Chinese economic behavior, which began shifting in 2015 when the state extended its control. Since then, bank deposits as a share of GDP have risen by an enormous 50 percent and are staying at that high level. Private sector consumption of durable goods is down by around a third versus early 2015, continuing to decline since reopening rather than reflecting pent-up demand. Private investment is even weaker, down by a historic two-thirds since the first quarter of 2015, including a decrease of 25% since the pandemic started, and both these key forms of private sector investment continue to trend still further downward, end quote.
0: The author posits the view that China's brand of autocracy, similar to Putin, Chavez, and now Maduro, or any other authoritarian regime, has intervened far too much into the economy. He reasons that the increase in household savings and decline in private investment, both of which are real, are the result of President Xi's arbitrary authoritarian policies rather than the end of an economic growth cycle. The Associated Press recently reported a similar phenomenon, claiming that foreign companies are increasingly uneasy about Chinese government intervention and its push to become more self-reliant. These analyses are fair, but maybe a little overblown. The most persistent problem inside China is the downward pull of a collapsing real estate market. Certain pundits would like us to believe that President Xi Jinping is becoming unhinged and crushing free market enterprise and foreign investment, a sign that he's leaning back into the more authoritarian days of the Communist Party. But that overlooks the fact that China has been far more ruthless even during periods of remarkable economic development. And I have a hunch that it plays into ulterior motive narratives designed to turn us against one of our most significant economic allies. Back to authoritarianism. After Deng Xiaoping, who is widely credited with planting the seeds for China's economic renaissance, stepped down in the wake of the Tiananmen Square protests, reformer Zhang Zemin guided the nation through the 1990s, averaging a 10% growth rate per year. Did he do it by being less tough? To the contrary, he went on a relentless campaign to jail dissidents, journalists, and activists. But he opened the markets and eventually helped China secure a place in the World Trade Organization, an important milestone that we've covered before. Point being, China's economy isn't falling apart because Xi Jinping suddenly became a ruthless dictator. It's because China adopted the newly perverted form of US capitalism in the 1990s. Over the 35 years following World War II, The United States grew at a historic pace, and then it hit the wall and overcorrected to favor corporate America and push down the middle class. In the 35 years since Tiananmen Square, China followed a similar trajectory, which brings us to today. As a result, China now has an enormous middle class and extremely wealthy top tier that gorged on government investments and insatiable demand for growth. And now, capitalism's chickens are coming home to roost, as they do, and investors are beginning to get cold feet. Because that's what capitalism does. This is their 1980s Reagan moment. Which way will they go? State capitalism or corporate capitalism? Is there really a difference? So why bring this up? Because it offers interesting insight into the dominance and resilience of the US economy and tells us something about Bidenomics. But it also potentially throws a curveball at the US economy if China can't regain its footing. All of the US stimulus in the world won't stave off a global recession if China shits the bed. So Bidenomics is essentially what we know now as Chinanomics. Forget the politics or social constructs. From a purely economic perspective, think about what China has done. It's offered low-cost loans to impoverished nations in return for access to cheap labor and raw materials. Now, a century ago in the United States, we called that dollar diplomacy. It printed gobs of money and ran extraordinary deficits to fund domestic infrastructure projects that generated enormous corporate and shareholder wealth. We did that in the 1940s and 50s, during Obama's tenure, and now again under Biden. And recently, when the real estate market cratered and caused a banking crisis, It stepped in to shore up the financial sector and offer low-cost consolidation loans to real estate investment trusts, just like the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations have done in concert with the Federal Reserve. Here's a key difference, as well as how these two things are related. The difference is size and strength. No matter your feelings on American capitalism, the fact remains that U.S. GDP is $5.5 trillion more than China's. If that doesn't seem impressive, consider this. Our population is 330 million. Theirs is 1.4 billion. That means that our GDP per capita is five and a half times that of China. In short, there's no fucking comparison, especially if their economy is weakening and even showing signs of decelerating. In 2023, consumer prices in China are going backwards. That's called deflation, one of the worst things an economy can experience. Now here's where they're interconnected. The U.S. is China's biggest customer. They need us, badly. But China is one of our biggest operating partners in making all the shit they need us to buy. If the Chinese people and corporations are holding on to a record amount of cash and prices are falling simultaneously, it means there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than just fear of a leader and a real estate bubble. There are real cracks in the Chinese economy, and that's not good for global markets as we look to recalibrate the world's supply chain. There's a very real possibility that the capital flight from Chinese markets will inure to the benefit of U.S. companies and U.S. treasuries. That's good, right? Good for U.S. companies and wealthy investors. But that's not exactly middle out and bottom up.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Seriously, though, I'm just wondering when you're going to talk about Bidenomics. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. This is fascinating. But, you know, Biden, you know, Biden, Bidenomics. Let's go. All
0: right. Fair enough. Just hold it in the back of your minds that no matter what Biden, the Fed, the major banks or anyone says about recessions, the stock market, GDP or whatever, we're no longer alone in the world. And there are things happening across the globe that will have an impact on the real economy. And that means you and me. But the fact remains that both the U.S. and China have been pouring ungodly sums of money into the global economy and it's been propping up the global banking sector and domestic real estate markets for quite some time. But China's in a different pickle. Can't keep spending money on real estate. There are already dozens of what they call ghost cities with no one in them. The people are sitting on cash and unwilling to spend it so direct stimulus won't invigorate much. The United States and Europe have begun to carve new supply chains to the benefit of fresh competitors like India or Bangladesh or South America. And these economies happen to be on fire. And the U.S. has taken direct aim at two important sectors to the Chinese economy, microchips and renewable energy. So they have their work cut out for them. And unlike China, we are desperately in need of infrastructure investment. For all of Trump's bluster about infrastructure, it never came to fruition. This is where we pick up on the Bidenomics story. Biden and company are gambling that the investments to be made into the economy through the Inflation Reduction Act will begin hitting the real economy by the time Americans head to the polls. And it's a dicey gamble, which I'll explain in a minute, but it's likely the only strategy that they have going forward.
2: Chapter 2, Behind the Numbers. Here's the thing. Biden is a technocrat.
0: Now, recall that he was in charge of the infrastructure spending under Obama's 2009 bailout, and it was flawless. But it was guided by Larry Summers' philosophy of timely, targeted, and temporary, the three Ts. Now, for the obvious critique, it took a while to get off the ground, and it was a lot of window dressing, though necessary. Roads were paved. The Feds backstop state-run projects, a handful of fixes to federal transportation infrastructure were performed, but nowhere near the overhaul required and what the Inflation Reduction Act tapped into. And despite all the hoopla surrounding subsidies to solar manufacturers at the time, that was a drop in the bucket. But it was ultimately successful no matter what the GOP says, which is why you don't hear them talking about that anymore. This time, we have a different Biden. He's not the technocrat in charge. He's the POTUS. And he's really fucking old. So we have to rely on the capabilities of his underlings to facilitate these projects. Now, for all my criticisms of Mayor Pete, I have confidence that he will faithfully administer his end of the deal. As for the other agencies, my impression is that there's a high degree of competency, so that really shouldn't be the issue. The real issue, from an economic perspective, is that we're missing one of the summer's T's. These are timely and targeted, Lord knows we need these investments, but they're not temporary. By design, these investments are of a different character. Now under Summers, the issue was the amount of money. There wasn't enough to go around, so that's why the projects were less substantial. People forget that one-third of Obama's $800 billion stimulus went directly to the states to fill in budget shortfalls and support Medicaid. Another third went to shoring up unemployment leaving the last third for infrastructure. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what we're about to spend over the next nine years. The administration has dispatched officials to appear on as many programs as possible to tout a few key metrics and tease the fact that we've only just begun. So they talk about cooling inflation, historically low unemployment, American manufacturing coming back, and achievements like lower prescription drug prices for seniors. You're hearing these talking points a lot because... They're true, but also just about all they have to stand on for re-election. So why the low approval ratings? Why the concern, the stress and pressure, images of tent cities and urban areas? When does the middle out extend to you and me? Are homeless people below the so-called bottom destined to be forgotten? People are right to question Bidenomics. The Democrats are gambling on enough groundbreakings in key states that recovery happens in swing states first and foremost. That's by design. And if just enough signs go up, just enough shovels go into the ground, just enough contracts start paying out to large companies, maybe, just maybe, Biden will turn 85 in the White House and blow out the candles with his oxygen machine.
2: Right, actually, I think that would blow up the Oval Office. Fair
0: point. Anyway, that's essentially a wrap for Bidenomics.
2: What? Wait, did I miss something?
0: No, you didn't. Bidenomics is an over-Keynesian response to the pandemic to make up for lost infrastructure spending since the Reagan administration and nothing more. Monetary policy is being dictated solely by the Fed, which is just beginning to pull back, but there's more to that story as well. The Fed is also dictating rates in a vacuum and still looking to put people out of jobs in order to curb inflation, even though we know that's not why inflation got to the point that it did. In terms of economic policy, that's all we've got spend a shitload of overdue dollars that will pour into the commercial sector to reduce our reliance on foreign partners, shore up an aging physical infrastructure, and encourage investments into a renewable future.
2: Uh, Seems like there's a lot missing.
0: Yeah, a lot. The direct child payment that lifted millions of children out of poverty in an instant? Gone. Attempts to overhaul the healthcare system and move toward a comprehensive public option? off the table. Student debt relief? Oh well, we gave it a shot. Increasing taxes on the wealthy to reduce inequality? That went out the window on the debt ceiling negotiations. These are the policy measures that actually impact people directly and measurably. There's no guesswork involved when you have food on the table, a stable job, wages increasing more than the rate of inflation, manageable debt, and coverage in the event you fall ill. What people want is, in reality, so fucking simple that the only American miracle is that we somehow fuck it up. Instead, our policies are almost exclusively oriented around corporate America. Behind all of the talking points, we've got the receipts to demonstrate that Bidenomics is about propping up big business while trying to convince your lying eyes that it's really all about you. Middle out, bottom up, try trickle down, Biden style. Like I said, the full charts and data can be found on the accompanying blog at unftr.com. But here's a high level view of the only figures you really need to know to understand the economy and where we're headed. Let's start off with my favorite, the Conference Board Leading Economic Index, or LEI for short. Here's what the LEI measures. Manny, will you do the honors?
2: Sure. Ooh, a top 10 list. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Ten, average weekly hours in manufacturing. Nine, average weekly initial claims for unemployment insurance. Eight, manufacturers' new orders for consumer goods and materials. Seven, ISM index of new orders. 6. Manufacturer's New Orders for Non-Defense Capital Goods Excluding Aircraft Orders 5. Building Permits for New Private Housing Units 4. S&P 500 Index of Stock Prices 3. Leading Credit Index 2. Interest Rate Spread 10-Year Treasury Bonds Less Federal Funds Rate And the number one indicator on the LEI is the Average Consumer Expectations for Business Conditions! <laughs> Ah, yeah. Hey, Max, point of order. I know you wrote this like a top 10 list because it's more fun to say out loud, but I think you should tell the unfuckers that this is in no particular order.
0: Oh, right. Okay. unfuckers, that list was in no particular order. You're a dick. Here's what the LEI write up said in July, and then we'll talk about why this is so important. Quote, the U.S. LEI fell for the 16th consecutive month in July, signaling the outlook remains highly uncertain. On the other hand, the Coincident Index, which tracks where economic activity stands right now, has continued to grow slowly but inconsistently, with three of the past six months not changing and the rest increasing. As such, the CEI is signaling that we are currently still in a favorable growth environment. However, in July, weak new orders, high interest rates, a dip in consumer perceptions of the outlook for business conditions, and decreasing hours worked in manufacturing – Fueled the leading indicator's 0.4% decline. The leading index continues to suggest that economic activity is likely to decelerate and descend into mild contraction in the months ahead. The Conference Board now forecasts a short and shallow recession in the Q4 2023 to Q1 2024 time span. End quote. Okay, blah 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 blah. Right. Essentially, the LEI is signaling a deceleration at best and a mild recession at worst. What's useful about this index is that it has been perfect in predicting economic activity and recessions over the last half century. One of the reasons it's such a strong index is because it combines big business items with consumer business confidence, real manufacturing data, unemployment, wages, housing, credit and market predictions where treasuries are concerned. So when several measures are pulling down, the whole index turns negative and gives us a predictable look forward. So if the LEI is signaling a recession, even a mild one in an election year, that's not a great look for Bidenomics. But team Biden has access to all the same figures we do, right? That's why the narrative push to convince people that things are maybe a little better than they are is so critical, especially in the run up to an election. So that's the backdrop. Republicans can smell blood in the water and are rooting for things to worsen, knowing that the next president will inherit the tailwinds that will eventually pick up once infrastructure spending really starts to take hold. But we're a couple years away from that, if we're being honest. Democrats are hoping and praying that deceleration is the worst of it and that the artificial boost resonates in key states ahead of the election. On the surface, there is reason for optimism where that's concerned on the Democratic side of things. But it's also important to dig deep into the numbers. Take Wisconsin, for example, a crucial battleground state that Biden took in 2020, but Trump took in 2016. Shout out to our Wisco badger fuckers, all hail Nettie. Well, according to the St. Louis Federal Reserve, Wisconsin has an extremely tight labor market for several reasons, quote, including an aging workforce and a shortage of young workers interested in jobs in Wisconsin's manufacturing industry. End quote. One number Two pictures so Wisco has extremely low unemployment so that's good right so the Democrats see that as a good thing when they tout manufacturing expansion in the Rust Belt currently it boasts a two and a half percent unemployment rate let's say compared to New York's 4.9 percent unemployment rate as an example but that's not the whole picture in fact it might work against them having a job is great but having one you like that makes you feel secure is better if manufacturing is lost on wisconsin's youth and the older workforce is aging out then low unemployment might be a sign of a shifting paradigm in the labor market something that the figures won't tell you so again that's our backdrop but we have to look further into the data to figure out what deceleration or mild recession means for the corporate class versus the working class Let's examine a series of charts that together tell an interesting story. We'll start on the corporate side of the ledger and then move to the consumer. Let's start with a super macro item that should be of much greater concern to the people than it is. The Federal Reserve balance sheet. If we take a short view on the Fed balance sheet, then you can see that it's beginning to shrink. What does that mean? Remember back in 2009, there was a lot of talk about the size of the Fed and how it was buying up treasuries and toxic assets? If you look at it in isolation, it's a remarkable increase, almost a 90-degree uptick as the Fed stepped in to save the U.S. banking system and essentially prevent the global economy from nosediving into a 30s-like depression. At the time, people were outraged. The bank bailouts inspired Occupy Wall Street, made Bernie Sanders a household name. During the crisis, the Fed balance sheet doubled from $1 to $2 trillion. Staggering! Well, guess what? Today, it's at $8.2 trillion and no one's talking about it. But, and this is a qualified but, that figure is down from $8.9 trillion just 18 months ago. So what's going on here? Well, essentially, the Fed continued its buying spree to ensure liquidity in the financial markets. At the same time, rates were so low prior to the recent rate hikes, that the banks were basically living risk-free and participating in legal arbitrage. Free money from the Fed that they could invest back into the market knowing the Fed was backstopping it? It's the con of a lifetime. So where did that money go? And that leads us to the next chart. Manny? Total cash on hand, U.S. corporations and banks, St. Louis Fed. Non-financial U.S. corporations are holding on to about $1.7 trillion in the bank right now. And about 12 tech companies make up almost $1 trillion of that. That's an impressive number, until you consider it's down more than a trillion over the last 18 months, largely because U.S. companies spent their COVID cash on stock buybacks and dividends. And yet, even with such eye-popping sums going into the hands of the wealthiest citizens in the nation, companies are still sitting on 10 times the amount of cash they were in 2010 when the Fed was propping up the economy. It's important to note that these are non-financial institutions, so while there's a significant element of pandemic money lining their coffers, there's a bigger reason why companies have accumulated so much fucking cash.
2: Staying with the St. Louis Fed,
0: we've got U.S. corporate profits. This one rounds out the corporate side of the ledger, and it's a doozy. Corporate profits, as we speak, for 2023 will be about $2.7 trillion. Now, that's down from three trillion in 2022 at the height of inflation and riding the post-pandemic liquidity phase. The liquidity I'm speaking of, by the way, is among the population. Remember, the real infrastructure stimulus hasn't hit the economy yet. So the biggest payouts were to small and medium-sized businesses and direct to consumers. So what did the corporations do across the board? They raised their prices or took price as we covered in our inflation episodes a reference to the coded language CEOs would use on investor calls, a euphemism for fleecing the public because everyone was flushed with cash from the government. Outside of the inflation elements that were due to the supply chain issues and persistent lockdowns in China, the book is closed as to why inflation was so high in the United States in particular. Now, relative to the rest of the world, we're still doing better than them, but our brand of inflation can be directly correlated to companies increasing prices and taking profits. Our companies simply stole the money out of the pockets of the American people because they could. How do I know this? Because in the year 2000, US corporate profits were at about 500 billion. So over the past two and a half decades, corporate profits have risen fivefold. The government locked you in and paid you out. Then corporate America hoovered your bank accounts and forced you to dip into credit, all while the Fed punished you by raising interest rates and making car payments, mortgage payments, and bank loans more expensive. And we know this for a fact, because now we can move to the consumer side of the ledger. Hey, unfuckers, do you love you some UNFTR? Well, you can support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app, leaving us a great review, purchasing our coffee made in partnership with Native Coffee Traders. But if you really love what we do, And want to see the show continue to grow, please consider taking out a membership to support our team. Go to unftr.com to find out how to do all the things. Now back to the show.
2: A little closer to my home this time. Let's check out what the Atlanta Fed has to say about wage growth.
0: Real wage growth paints an interesting picture. While it looks like growth tracks with recessions and corporate activity, it's orders of magnitude smaller in terms of the rate of change. For example, if you look at the average wage growth among employed workers at the turn of the millennium, we see an average growth rate of a little over 5% annually. Throughout the aughts, real wages then went on a steady decline and fell off a cliff during the financial crisis. Wage growth didn't approach 2,000 levels again until 2022, just last year. Then it took a huge leap forward to the high 6% range, only to find itself retrenching in 2023, where it looks like it will settle in in the high 5% range, or slightly above where it was in 2000. The takeaway here is obvious when you map corporate profits against real wage growth. Despite the brief acceleration in 2022 alone, real wages in this country have stagnated for decades, on average, just barely above inflation, which means most people haven't really gotten ahead while corporations have been so flushed with cash and profits they've been pouring into shareholder pockets and creating extreme wealth gaps. And you can see how corporate America picks our pockets in the next two charts to quickly drive this home. Over
2: to the left coast this time to hang with the San Francisco Fed and check out household savings. During the pandemic, U.S.
0: households banked a ton of cash from the government to the tune of $2.1 trillion in accumulated excess savings. Now, prior to this period, savings had barely budged in recent years. Then starting midway through 2021 and continuing through today, the same households have been liquidating these savings. The San Francisco Fed estimates that $1.6 trillion of the excess savings has already been depleted.
2: Oh, well, the Lord giveth and taketh away. So the Fed estimates that
0: there's still about $500 of excess savings that still exists and notes that there's a great deal of uncertainty as to whether this will hold due to an adjustment in the average household savings profile. In other words, have people depleted enough of their savings that they're beginning to change their buying habits? In other words, again, have they started to hold back on buying shit, which would definitely lead us into a recession? That's exactly right. Well, this next chart would indicate that this is not happening but that's not necessarily a good thing either.
2: All right, now we're back in New York, baby. The New York Fed on household debt. In 2023,
0: U.S. households are carrying, wait for it, $17 trillion in debt, credit card debt, mortgages, student loans, HELOCs, auto loans. In 2004, that figure was $8 trillion.
2: So we've more than doubled our indebtedness since that time. And back then, rates were low. So I guess that answers the US savings question. We might be trying to hold on to our savings, getting 5% of the bank, but we're paying 24% on our credit cards, 8% on our mortgages, and 7.5% on our student loans. Damn, no matter how you slice it, they got you. Yep, you got it. And that's the story here, folks.
0: That's Bidenomics. But also, that's Bushonomics, Obamanomics, Reaganomics. Call it what you like. The corporate class is winning the race. In the past couple of years, they've been winning it going away. If Bidenomics was really a good thing, we'd be refinancing student debt and talking about forgiveness. We'd be talking about reverting to direct child payments to ensure that children don't fall into poverty. We'd be investing in a mental health and federal housing emergency infrastructure plan and not just into solar panels and bridges. Medicare for all would be on the agenda. So would minimum wage. Now I realize these things can't be done now. Not with the deadlocked Congress. That and an election season that has officially kicked off. So that's a wrap. We got what we got from the first two years of the administration. And yes, it was a lot. Because we were making up for lost time. But to think it's enough to fill the basic needs of the American people. To make them feel secure by the time they pull the lever. I'm not so sure. For the first time ever. This might be about more than just jobs. See, it's a long held notion that sitting presidents or incumbent parties for that matter, don't lose elections when unemployment is extremely low like this. But nothing is as it was. Everything's different now. There's only one certainty that you can derive from all these charts. Corporate America has won. It's over. The neoliberal chapter of the Republic is coming to a close. And we're entering something new. Wolin's inverted totalitarianism, oligarchy, corporatocracy, whatever we wind up calling it, know this. Until we begin to see our future through the lens of class struggle, we'll never gather enough political momentum and capital to defeat the corporate class and reverse some of the abuses in power.
2: Hey, bro, before you wrap up, can I, can I ask you something serious? Why would you spend so much time talking about China up at the top?
0: Yeah, it's a fair question. Look, you've often heard me throw around the term ethnocentrism. We have this tendency to only see ourselves in the world, or to see the world around us exclusively through an American lens. The way we're talking about China now worries me. We're rattling sabers and warning of impending and invisible threats. That's where Jeffrey Sachs has a point. This is all posturing because we need to feed the war machine. Who are we if we're not the country fighting an existential threat? And Posen too makes a fair argument that China is increasingly clamping down on corporations and citizens in arbitrary ways. They're fumbling the ball because they're running up against a perfectly normal circumstance that arises when you run a capitalist system. But that's not why capital is fleeing the country as I alluded to earlier. So a couple of things here. First off, we need to back off the rhetoric because another cold war or God forbid a hot war would be catastrophic, it's just stupid. But also, we need to engage with China to align our interests and ensure that they don't dissolve into a deep recession because it will drag the rest of the global economy down with it. So when we think about Bidenomics, it's important to pick our heads up and look around. Europe also struggling right now. India is ascending, but from such a low level baseline, it's not gonna be as important to the global economy as the US and China will be for the next couple of decades. And if our policies are so blindly implemented as to impact the rest of the world negatively, we have only ourselves to blame for being so myopic. And if there is a sudden but deep and protracted decline in the Chinese economy, then all the king's horses and infrastructure bills in this country won't help Americans feel better at the polls next year. Are you ready for Trump part two, the prison administration, President DeSantis, President Ramaswamy? The reason we're doing such a deep dive into the history of socialism, by the way, and the history of anarcho-syndicalism and Marxism is because history can teach us a great deal about the times in which we live. Make no mistake, the paradigm is shifting. The dialectic is resolving in dangerous ways. And the more we settle for Bidenomics or Trump's brand of economic pandemonium, the further away we move from shifting the consciousness of the working class in this country the further we are from recognizing that the enemy isn't crossing the border. The enemy isn't teaching critical race theory or even standing on the debate stage at the Republican primary for that matter. The enemy is sitting in corporate boardrooms. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode Where we used to do show notes Now we just
1: talk through a few things Reflect on what was said Or what we should have done instead Oh, post-show musings
0: Hey, unfuckers, it's Max Roland Solo and post-show musings 99 is on a lot of corporate stuff right now In our other lives Like we said, we, we gotta keep... Uh, priming the pump on the other end of the business just to keep things flowing here over at UNFTR. It's a a tricky time for us. So she is busy as fuck and our schedules just didn't align. So I'm in here recording this by myself. Of course, sending it over to Manny for his interjections, which I know he'll do perfectly as he does. Here's what we got coming up. We have another update on an old AOC topical cream, something that I was discussing in the phone a friend with Francesca. It's a little thing that I'm bitching about. To invoke the habituation room frantifa lingo for a moment, this bizarre newfound attack on AOC from the left, and by extension the Squad, I find kind of troubling. But there's a couple of competing narratives on the left that I think are actually kind of productive that I kind of just I just want to dip into for a little bit because I don't know if you've noticed this, but the left is completely gone, disappeared from the discourse. Yes, we have Cornell West fighting from the fringes and the in the Green Party, but as far as the rest of the country knows, there's really not much of a representation because somebody like Cornell West comes from purely from an outsider and activist position and doesn't even really have a lane on the racetrack right now. So, what is the left? You know, did, did we really just have Bernie? How much hope can we put in the squad and how much can we continue to build on progressive momentum in Congress if we don't have kind of a a titular head of the movement, so to speak? I mean, we're dumb animals. We need people to look up to. There aren't a lot of just groundswell movements that don't happen when we don't have our eyes on the prize. That's just kind of the American way. We need somebody to, to look at. Now, As we go through all these different Marxian interpretations of history and class struggles, you know, the history might tell us differently. History tells us, at least through a Marxist lens, that actually those type of leaders aren't really necessary or else you, you know, have the the potential to kind of lean into Leninist, Stalinist, Trotskyist demagoguery, right? So, a lots unpacked there. That's why I'm enjoying this socialism series so much. It has given me such a bright new lens Through which to interpret events currently. Because sometimes when you get mired in the details, when you go through something like this in Bidenomics, it's so easy to just dip into, you know, and sort of calibrate your mind to the norms of the capitalist rhythm. It's very tempting to do that. It's only when you can break free of that and look at this and say, wait a minute, this is all fucking madness. I don't want Biden to lose because that means that there will be a Republican in the White House and this slate of candidates is horrifying. But at the same time, I just want to call bullshit on the system without looking like I'm just throwing and lobbing bombs in and being like, everything sucks and we should just fucking be anarchists because nobody even knows what an anarchist is anymore. Anyway, that's why this journey is so much fun. In addition to the topical cream coming up, we do have our penultimate installment of the socialism series. This is a monster. This is a big one. Uh, and then the last one is going to be sort of an epilogue of sorts where we where we do talk about what is, what is the future state? What does this look like going forward? That's going to be a really interesting one. I have many thoughts about it. It's just not really formulated fully in my head because I really got to get through this penultimate chapter. Uh, and that'll tell us a lot. In addition, we've got other phone of friends coming up, but I did want to ask Unfuckers a favor. So I was wondering if you could... I don't know what the best place to do this is. Certainly on the Unfuckers at All space on Facebook. You could weigh in there or maybe go to the community tab on YouTube. If I get enough suggestions for this next little thing, uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll compile it into a poll and we'll put it out in those places to see who people want to hear from. But I'm wondering, who would you like... To have on the show. So, full disclosure, as I've said before, it's it's a new thing. I can't I can't even begin to tell you how nervous I was. Nathan and I had a couple of conversations prior to us doing that interview, so I was a little more comfortable with that. But it was weird interviewing Francesca because like I'm a legit consumer of her brand. Like I, I just I follow her and I find her podcast a lot of fun and she has some really great guests on sometimes. She's a very, very capable commentator and media host. And she's extremely funny, um, which is so hard to do when you're just, you know, by yourself or just like with one other person, but she's got great repartee. Uh, So I was, I was really nervous going into that one, like legit butterflies in the stomach. And like, you know, dude, I'm 50. Like, why am I nervous about these things? But it's, it's intimidating because, you know, you want to keep the conversation going. You want to, have a good rapport with the person, you wanna actually tease out some good information. So by interviewing other people that are in the uh, commentary, the punditry or the journalism class, I'm admittedly going for stuff that is really comfortable conversationally for me. But I also wanna make sure that I'm really digging out some things that people wanna hear, like phone a friend should really be about stuff that we don't know about or talk about. Not to say that I didn't get great stuff out of uh, both Nathan and Francesca. I learned a lot and I love talking to them. But I also think we set the table with them to go back to the well and talk to them about things that are very specific in the future uh, so that we can continue to drive value. I think they're going to be great friends of the show. So who else do you think would be a great friend of the show? Who are the people that you listen to about some of the topics that we cover and you say, man, that, that person's killing it Max should really have him on the show and do a deep dive because I think we would all get something out of it. Let me know. Post it on Facebook. Post it on YouTube. And this is a weird one, unfuckers, and it's, uh, this is just us talking here. YouTube is a tricky beast. We're actually gaining some momentum. Followers are coming. Subscribers are coming. Engagement seems to be increasing. There's a couple of videos, though, that don't have a lot of comments, and then they start to get suppressed in the algorithm. If you can, I don't want you to go out of your way or you know, dip into something that you've already seen and you're just you know, your eyes would bleed watching it again. If you can participate in the comment section, it actually sends a pretty big algorithmic signal to YouTube. So any engagement that you could give us over there really helps. Again, the goal there is to amass a really large following at some point on YouTube because that will be one of the ways that we can offset the costs Uh, of running the show, to bring in more revenue that doesn't impact the public and doesn't, you know, uh, you know, have to, doesn't require us to keep reaching out to people and making requests. This is a, this is a grind. There's no question about it. And I got a long, long view and I'm a really patient man. So I'm in this for the long haul, you know, but financially this is, this is pretty fucking brutal. So the more you can help us grow on YouTube if the, if it's okay with you, the you know the better it all works out for the for all of us here over at Team UNFTR. So that's that. Uh, on behalf of my team, on the great and powerful ninety nine who produces the show, of course the uh, the sound design maestro, my good friend, my brother for so many years now. I mean, we're talking decades now. Manny faces. The original music is from Tom McGovern. I think we put the. Gilbert and Sullivan inspired theme song at the head of the show. Uh, That's one of my favorites. He he crushed that one. All of the information you need about supporting us or asking us questions or engaging with us can be found at UNFTR.com. And now that I'm back from my summer uh, respite, I'm going to be back on the newsletter track, getting that out on a weekly basis. So if you're interested in signing up for the newsletter and communicating with us at a deeper level, we just added a new feature. It's chart of the week. You've got some max notes in there, which is just sort of my musings, the things I'm thinking about. That's where we actually document all of the headlines that we cover in show notes as well, with a little longer descriptions and some links to uh, important articles that we're reading and things that uh, we don't get to surface on the show all that often, but we find interesting. So sign up for the newsletter, unftr.com slash blog. And I believe that's it. And that's all. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, hunfuckers.